Well, good Friday to you. It is great to see you this morning. Thank you for joining us, making your way downtown. If downtown isn't your home, Westsiders, always good to see you. If you happen to be a guest, a friend who's come with another, maybe you've seen the signs outside, maybe you received an invitation in the mail, and you've decided to join us for this Good Friday celebration, uh, again, thank you. It's our joy and our honor to have you with us today. My name is Norm. I'm one of the pastors here, and I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the 27th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 26 today. If you've been with us over the last number of weeks, specifically last Sunday, we entered the city of Jerusalem last Sunday on Palm Sunday. Jesus specifically, we observed him entering the city of Jerusalem, but he didn't enter alone. Great crowds came with him. And they came with Jesus on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday now, not simply because they had a great fascination and dedication to Jesus, although many of them certainly did, but because it was Passover, one of the most holy, one of the most uh, significant of Jewish obs uh, observances. And so great throngs of people were coming in in readying, uh, readying themselves for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that is part and parcel with Passover. That was last Sunday, and many things have transpired since over the last five days. Just to give you some highlights between Sunday and Friday, some of them include things like the cleansing of the temple. Jesus cleansed the temple soon after arriving in Jerusalem. Uh, he cursed the fig tree. He also continued to teach and to heal openly and dramatically, oftentimes in the temple courts themselves. Some of the most significant teaching took place during this five-day period. Perhaps the most significant was Jesus' teaching on the last days. He gave his insight on the last days in what is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus taught it while on the Mount of Olives, which was just outside of Jerusalem, just east of it. At the bottom of the Mount of Olives was the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometime during this week as well, Judas, one of his twelve, agreed to sell Jesus out. Yesterday morning, Thursday morning, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him about the preparation of Passover. And Jesus told two of his disciples to go into the city of Jerusalem. They would meet an individual and they would be given a furnished upper room where they could take part in Passover. And so these two individuals did secure the upper room. They prepared the feast and later that evening after sundown, the Passover was celebrated. It was eaten and enjoyed by Jesus and his twelve. G uh, during the course of the evening, there were other significant events that took place. In the upper room, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He gave his disciples the mandate to love one another. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He sends Judas out. He predicts Peter's denial. He prays his high priestly prayer, and then he makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples in tow. It is now more than likely very early Friday morning. While in the garden, Jesus prays, and he pleads, and he sweats blood, and his disciples sleep. 
It's also in the garden where Judas escorts a large mob of religious leaders, temple security, and Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and the rest of the disciples flee. Jesus is bound. He is then taken to a former high priest, a man named Annas. It is in this meeting with Annas where Jesus is first struck. Jesus is then brought to the current high priest, an individual named Caiaphas, who just happens to be the son-in-law of Annas, where he is asked the question, are you the Christ? Jesus responds, you have said so. Caiaphas reacts in melodramatic, in, in, uh, over the topness, let me just put it that way. He tears off his robe, he declares blasphemy. And he decrees that Jesus deserves to die. In this meeting, Jesus is spat upon, he's slapped, he's struck, and he's mocked. While this is taking place, Peter denies knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, and the rooster crows. But at this point, an issue has arisen. And the issue is that Caiaphas and his religious leadership, something it's called, referred to as the Sanhedrin, they don't have authority to carry out capital punishment. That was reserved for the Romans. Thus, Jesus is again bound and he's brought to a man named Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of the region of Judea, the location of Jerusalem. He served as a prefect. Under the emperor of Rome, a man named Tiberius Caesar, essentially Pilate had three tasks as governor. One was he had to collect taxes and send them to Rome. That was one of his tasks. Another was to rule on weighty matters. And the third was to keep the peace, Pax Romana. History supports two realities related to this. Number one, keeping peace and harmony between the people of Israel and the Romans wasn't always easy. Not only did a large majority of the Jewish people abhor the Romans, they disdained paying taxes, and they hated the idea of submitting to their brand of law and justice. And thus, as you can imagine, there would have been, a, there would have been heightened tension when Jerusalem, a city that was normally Around 200,000 in population swelled to over 10 times that number as faithful and observant Jews descended, descended on her to partake in Passover. Pilate's permanent residence was in a place called Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea which was on the coast. But he traveled to Jerusalem as well, not to observe Passover, but to be on hand to ensure that any issues could be handled swiftly and strongly History also supports that Pilate's relationship with Emperor Tiberius was tenuous at best. In fact, as we drop in on Pilate here, there would have been many that would have questioned his ability to govern. He had made some decisions at the, in the past that caused people to question his, his abilities. As we drop in on Pilate in Matthew 27, we meet a man who was working hard to keep his job. He was also working very hard to please Rome, specifically Tiberius Caesar. Tied in with this, Passover, the amount of people that have come into Jerusalem, this tenuous relationship between the Romans and the Jews, 
a custom was carried out, a custom that began with several emperors before Pontius Pilate. This custom was that during Passover, the governor would release one of their own people, one of the Jewish people, back into them. The people didn't get to choose whom they wanted to set free. They were presented with some options to choose from. But it was a goodwill gesture nonetheless. An act of diplomacy that sought to soothe the tension between the two groups, sort of like maybe lessening the tolls on bridges. <laughs> it's this custom that we read about in verse 15. But before looking at it specifically, I want you to first notice some characteristics in Pilate. One of the characteristics that I want you to note is his cowardice. His cowardice is displayed most dramatically in that he, and you can see this in verse 19, talking about one of those tasks that he has, that he who sat on the, the seat of judgment, he had that type of authority and found no guilt in Jesus. In Luke 23, Pilate states there, what evil has Jesus done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death while also recognizing the motivation between behind, excuse me, wanting Jesus killed was envy. You can read about that in verse 18. So he's on the seat of judgment. He sees nothing guilty in Jesus. And he knows the motivation between be, uh, as attached to the people bringing Jesus for death is envy. In spite of all of that, he would still eventually give the go-ahead for Jesus' crucifixion. Instead of declaring Jesus innocent as he was, and setting him free, Pilate, in the end, delivered him to be crucified. However, before rendering his decision, Pilate does attempt to change public opinion of Jesus, or at least what they want to do with Jesus, or instead of that, at least removing himself from direct involvement. For example, when Pilate hears that the majority of the ministry of Jesus didn't take place in Judea, or Jerusalem for that matter, but takes place in the region of Galilee, Pilate in his mind says, fantastic, I'm going to send him to Herod. Herod didn't live in Jerusalem either, but he was in Jerusalem to observe Passover. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, the Jewish tetrarch of Galilee. Perhaps Herod would take over. Herod was, by the way, the one who beheaded John the Baptist, and so maybe he'd take care of Jesus instead of Pilate having to. Pilate, therefore, would be off the hook. The crowds would be happy. It wouldn't have come under Pilate's direction. It's a win-win in his mind. This is Pilate's first attempt at washing his hands of Jesus. A second is coming. Nothing comes of it, however, Jesus before Herod, for not only does Jesus refuse to answer any of Herod's questions, he was silent before Shear. But Herod sees no guilt in Jesus either. Jesus is then sent back to Pilate, the ball is in his court again. So that was opportunity number one in Pilate's eyes. But he's not done yet. He comes up with another plan. He chooses to physically punish Jesus, hoping that it would be enough to satisfy the crowd. 
In Luke chapter 23, verse 16, he states to the crowd there, I will punish him and then release him. Remember, he still thinks he's innocent. But to satisfy you, I'll flog him. Which is in fact what takes place. John 19 records that Pete, Pilate had Jesus flogged, meaning he was hit with canes again and again. He had a crown of thorns put on his head and he dressed him mockingly in purple robes. He then presented Jesus before the crowd stating, Behold the man! Look at him! Look at how beaten up he is! How I'm mocking him! Behold the man thinking, Take him back now! Look what I've done! But in response the crowds cried out, Crucify him! That was, a, that was plan number two. But he's got a third one. Pilate's not done, and he decides to take advantage of the custom that I mentioned earlier, and he nominates two people for the crowd to choose from. The two people that he chooses, number one, a man named Barabbas, a notorious murderer. He was a robber. He was a rebel. He was an insurrectionist. And the other choice is Jesus. Barabbas or Jesus? The choice was theirs. Seems like an easy one. I mean, who would you want back on the streets? Who would you want moving next door? A murderer? A rebel? Notorious? Or Jesus? And notice, as you look in your text, how Pilate poses the choice to the crowd. Do you want me to release to you Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? You want, you want the murderer or the Messiah? He actually does something similar in verse 22. He emphasizes that this isn't simply Jesus, this is Jesus the Christ. What's he doing? Pilate is trying to sway the crowd. He, he's trying to remind them what the word on the street is, what many hold to, that many hold to the fact that this is the Messiah. He's trying to remind them of that. He's, he's working hard and conjuring up their promises given to them about one coming. Perhaps even he's reminding some of the individuals who are part of this crowd what they just yelled out this past Sunday. Who do you want? You want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And yet in spite of Pilate's best efforts, they chose Barabbas and Pilate in his cowardice complies. Which leads to a second characteristic of Pilate, his willingness to compromise. In spite of what he had determined to be true, to say little of the dream of his wife and her exhortation to have nothing to do with Jesus. In spite of all of that, his authority, what he knew, his conversations with Jesus, in spite of all of it, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. Why? Well, we get an answer in verse 24. If you look at verse 24, we read there, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. 
see to it yourselves. Mark adds this, and you can read this on the screen behind me, Mark chapter 15, verses 14 and 15, we read, And Pilate said to them, after they yelled out yet again, Crucify him, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, the cat of nine tails, he delivered him to be crucified. Do you remember Pilate's job description? Keep the peace. Pilate, keep the peace. He saw a riot about to begin. Add on top of that the tenuous, tenuousness of his position and a decision to compromise was chosen. And if keeping the peace and keeping his job meant the murder of one innocent man, then so be it. And thus, Pilate chose to keep the peace by killing the Prince of Peace. In the end, Pilate chose saving his job over saving Jesus' life. Cowardice, compromise, and then jumping out next about Pilate is his cleansing. We see Pilate's second attempt of washing his hands of Jesus in verse 24 as well. Only this time it's a literal washing. This was a Jewish custom. What Pilate ironically is doing there as a Roman was something that would have been known by the crowd instantly. It would have been instantly recognized. It was dramatic. It was poignant. But most of all, it was a, a picture of contempt against the crowd. This is Pilate saying, in this action, I'm going ahead with this. But I'm unwilling. This is on you. You're making me do this. But as we know, no ritual hand washing would absolve Pilate from his participation. And no amount of water would cleanse him from his guilt. And make no mistake, he could have set Jesus free. He chose not to, in fear of the crowd. That's Pilate, a coward, a compromiser, and guilt-ridden, seeking to do what he could, could to cleanse himself from it. But I don't want you just to notice some things about Pilate as we drop in on this event. I also want you to note some characteristics about the crowd, too. I'll be briefer here, but I don't want you to miss, first, their hostility. They don't want mere punishment. They want death. They want blood. Beatings and floggings and slaps and mocking and, and, and spitting wasn't going to satisfy them. We need to note their hostility, but in addition, I don't want you to miss their culpability either. In response to Pilate's self-appointed declaration of innocence. I'm innocent of the blood of this man. I wash myself of it in verse 24. Look at what they say in verse 25. It's dramatic. It's significant. Verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. It's an amazing statement. Now on the one hand, you don't say things like this, this unless you believe you're innocent. You don't 
call out damnation on your children and your children's children and your children's children's children unless you believe you're innocent. In other words, when you read verse 25, read this as the crowd saying, we're okay. And we feel so good about this that we'll take the blame if need be. Just rest easy, Pilate. But on the other, it was a tragic declaration of self-condemnation. See, Westside, they were guilty of the blood of Jesus. His blood would be on them. So when you notice the crowd, notice their hostility, notice their culpability, and last, I don't want you to miss their deniability either. Were they true to this word in verse 25? Hey, this blood will be on us. We'll take ownership of it. We feel good about what we're doing. Did they own that? What does history suggest? Well, in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, only months after this event, perhaps less than a year at least, there's this back and forth between the apostles and this same Sanhedrin group, the, the religious leadership of the day, the aristocracy of the day in Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, in this back and forth, they demand that the apostles stop teaching about Jesus. Just notice what they say to the apostles. Acts chapter 5 verse 28, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. How quick they were to deny. We have nothing to do with this man. His blood's not on us. Their hostility married to their culpability blended with their deniability, enabled, enabled them to choose Barabbas over Jesus. It's an interesting name, Barabbas, by the way, isn't it? You ever thought about it? It's Aramaic. It's a name that means son of the father. It's interesting. Bar, son of, Abba, father. Son of the father. For those of you who like religious symbolism, this name is packed with it, is it not? One son of the Father is being exchanged for another. It's a depiction of the gospel. But there's something more to the name that you may not know. More than likely, it's a last name, to use our verbiage, what we would call a last name. You see, at the time, if you were a male child or thereafter, you would have a first name, but then your last name, as it were, would be the name of your father. So my dad's name is Peter. My name would be Norm, son of Peter. So there are individuals that suggest that this is the last name. That, that's for the, that is the reason why in the exchange between Peter, another Peter, the apostle Peter and Jesus in Matthew 16, where he confesses Jesus as the Christ, Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. And so, once again, what some suggest is that Barabbas is a last name. Have you ever wondered what his first name was? Do we know? Do we have any hints? Well, interestingly, we do. 
and they show up in different translations of the Bible. One of those translations is the Lexham English Bible. This is how the Lexus, Lexham English Bible translates Matthew 27 verse 17. So after they had assembled, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas? Or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Huh. So what's going on here? Well, there are early manuscripts and copies of the Bible that include the name of Jesus in connection with Barabbas that his name was Jesus Barabbas. And then there are early copies and manuscripts that don't. The manuscripts and copies that were used to translate the Bibles we most commonly use don't. But to be clear, that doesn't mean that Barabbas wasn't named Jesus, a very common name at the time. But perhaps because the name Jesus was so quickly venerated, certain copyists chose not to connect it to such a notorious individual, so they just referred to him by his last name. It says this in the footnotes of the Lexham Bible that I quoted from, although many manuscripts omit Jesus here, it is so hard to explain why a scribe would have added it that the reading is probably original. It does help explain why Barabbas would have only been referred to by his last name, does it not? But Westside, if this is the case, doesn't that religious symbolism get kicked up a notch? Not simply, what son are you going to choose, but what Jesus are you going to choose? Are you going to choose Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? What Jesus? Which brings us to Barabbas, specifically. After taking the time to notice some things about Pilate and taking some time to, no time to notice some things about the crowd, what must we notice about him? Well, above all else, we must see his guilt. He had been rightly convicted as a murderer, a robber, and a rebel. So we must see his guilt. He is guilty as charged. And we also must see his bondage. He was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, Luke 23 tells us. But most of all, we must see his pardon. Look at verse 26. It says there, then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas. All four Gospels actually use the word release to describe the pardon of Barabbas. It's a word that means to loose, to set free, to be discharged and forgiven. So, Wessa, on this Good Friday, as you look at this event, I call you to notice Pilate's cowardice, his compromise, and his cleansing, and the crowd's hostility, and their culpability, and their deniability, and his, in addition to that, Barabbas's guilt, bondage, and pardon. But, if that's all we notice about this event, then we've stopped short in noticing what we must most of all. What we must notice most of all in this event, we must notice Jesus in this event. And what we must notice about Jesus is that in contrast to Pilate's cowardice, Jesus embodied courage. He set his face towards Jerusalem knowing full well what awaited him. 
And in contrast to Pilate's compromise, we must notice that Jesus displayed conviction. Not my will, but yours be done. And in contrast to Pilate's cleansing, we must notice that Jesus came to cleanse. John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So see the cleansing of Jesus. But notice as well how juxtaposed against the crowd's hostility, Jesus responds with charity. Crucify Him met with, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And juxtaposed against the crowd's culpability, Jesus bears responsibility. The blood of Jesus would be shed, and they did shed it. His blood, therefore, was on them. But there are two ways that you can read verse 25, aren't there? Verse 25, just one more time, they declare His blood be on us and on our children. You can read it as a statement of self-condemnation or as a prayer of forgiveness and salvation. His blood be on us and on our children. Amen? And juxtaposed against the crowd's deniability, Jesus offers forgivability. I know it's not a word. It should be because Jesus offers it. He offers forgivability. Perhaps less than two months after this event, Peter, who just denied Jesus three times, he preaches a sermon. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. It's a longer text. I want to read it for you. It's on the slides behind me or on the screen behind me, but it's worth listening to for it depicts the extent of the forgivability of Jesus. Let me read it for you. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Lawless men speaking of non-Jewish individuals like Pilate and the Roman soldiers. You killed them by their hands. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the brothers, what must we do? What shall we do? It would have been natural at this point to have heard a response like, you're done. It's over. You killed the Christ. It's not what Peter says. Peter says, this is what you should do. You should turn to Jesus. You should repent and be baptized. Come back Sunday, we're going to do that. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see the marvel of marvels. Consider what Peter is saying to this group of people. You will be forgiven from your sin of crucifying Jesus. How? By the crucifixion of Jesus. Huh. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. The saving of many souls. As Joseph, a foreshadowing of Jesus, said to his brothers, fast forward to Peter, what should we do? Repent, come to Jesus. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. and receive forgiveness. God is so big. What a savior. Jesus offers the same forgivability to me and you too. Forgiveness from our sin by way of the greatest sin ever committed. The killing of the Christ. How does that forgiveness come? Well, it comes by way of a great exchange that is pictured in the one between Jesus and Barabbas. You see, in exchange for Barabbas's guilt, Jesus gifts innocent. In exchange for Barabbas's bondage, Jesus enables freedom. In exchange for Barabbas's pardon, Jesus takes punishment. Ours too. It was our sin that held him there as well. Some commentators suggest that so sure was the crucifixion of Barabbas that Jesus hung on the cross built for him. But a, a different Jesus hung on that cross that day between the two thieves. How fortunate for one of those thieves, by the way. How fortunate for us, too. Lord Jesus. As we close, there's one final group to notice in this text. You pick them up? One group that we missed in this text? It's you and me. Westside, friends, guests, we are all over this text. I mean, doesn't the cowardice, the compromise, and the attempted self-cleansing of Pilate resonate with any of you? Living in fear of man, the crowds. Living contrary to you to your convictions, attempting to clean off your guilt in ways that prove fruitless. Can I ask, what's your water? 
I call you to the water that Jesus offers, a water that will quench your thirst forever. And how about the hostility, the culpability, and the deniability of the crowd? Are you more apt to deny the responsibility of your choices, even those choices sparked by great anger, than seek forgiveness? And therefore, isn't Jesus' blood on us too? If you do relate to Pilate and the crowd, but you wish to walk a different path than they, then can I offer you this morning the same exchange that Barabbas enjoyed? In fact, one far better, one permanent and total and eternal. Your guilt exchanged for innocence. Your bondage exchanged for freedom. And your, pa and your pardon exchanged for Jesus' punishment. A punishment that continues in verse 26 with scourging and ultimately Jesus' crucifixion thereafter. His blood would be shed. Westside, the fact of the matter is, as we wrap this time up, is we can carry the guilt of his blood or we can be cleansed by it. The choice is ours. What Jesus are you going to pick? And if you pick the one who came to give his life, murdered, not the murderer, then you know what that would make today? Really good. Let's pray. And Jesus, today is good because of what you did for us in our place 2,000 years ago. Crushed for us, beaten for us, pierced for us, dying for us. So good. So good. Good because of what that avails to us. Freedom and, and life and, and forgiveness and relationship. Release. And good because it declared the grandeur of the glory of the love of the Father for us. Glorious. And good because things didn't end on Friday. In spite of the excruciating pain of Friday and the darkness of Saturday, Sunday's coming. And that's what makes today good as well. And so, Father, as I've said many times, and I know I'm not alone in saying it, thank you for your love for us depicted in the sending of your Son. And Jesus, thanks for coming. And Holy Spirit, thanks for revealing Jesus to us. Would you do that again now in those that don't know you? They'd come to you. And those that do, that we would get more of you and be more like you.
and as we respond to you today that the words of our mouth would be birthed out of what's been changed internally hearts changed not just simply words but hearts being expressed in our words so I pray that you'd be pleased with our time of response as we remember specifically Jesus by way of the bread and the wine your death in our place we remember your death today you call us you called us in the upper room right before you were arrested remember my death do this in remembrance of my death so we do that to the glory of your name we love you we love you words cannot express enough how much we do I pray for these things and thank you in the beautiful and wondrous name of Jesus amen would you rise please my side as we go into a time of response as we do